be seated. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to your word today and we ask that you would indeed teach us once more from the book of Leviticus. Help us to learn about you and at the same time to learn about us and to learn about the relationship that you desire for us to have with you as your people. How far short we fall in keeping our obligations and how gracious you are to even so forgive us our sin and to claim us as your own. We pray that you would show us your glory today, that we would more and more each day long to worship you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I I heard another pastor use this illustration once, and I thought it was really good. It really kind of gets to the point. I I don't know if you have ever seen these before. Uh, Back in the, probably the 1990s, they were pretty big. There were these pictures that you'd look at, and and they were made up of of different colored dots and and lines and squiggles and such, and, and, and it looked kind of like nothing, really, and until you stared at it, you'd stare at it and stare at it and stare at it. As you stared at a fixed point in this picture, you know, maybe 10 seconds in or 15 seconds in, all of a sudden your eyes would begin to see uh, another image within the picture that you didn't at first notice. It kind of leapt off the page and in three dimensions at you. You'd see here what you hadn't first seen in the picture, I don't know if you've ever seen these pictures before. Um, I, I, I've always enjoyed them, and and as I thought about the book of Leviticus, it seems to me that that Leviticus is kind of like one of these pictures. You know, we we look at it and we see all these different feasts and laws and and rules that that seem to be kind of miscellaneous, dealing with with food and and worship practices, and skin diseases, and holidays, and, and they seem to not really all go together that much. They're just kind of random thoughts, squiggles, and dots, if you will. But as we, we look intently upon the book of Leviticus, as we, as we stare into it at a fixed point, an image begins to take shape. I hope it has anyway so far through this series. And that, of course, is the image of Christ Jesus, our Savior. For the book of Leviticus is intended ultimately to point us to Christ, as is all of Scripture. And I hope that as we've looked at the book of Leviticus in these weeks, uh, that, that it has helped us to ultimately see a clearer, fuller picture of Jesus. And I think this especially is so in the chapters we're looking at today, chapters 21 through 23. Um, Originally, my plan was to cover even a little bit more than that this morning. Uh, it, it turns out, as I prepared, it became very obvious that we weren't going to be able to get through uh, more than that. And, and I wish we had extra weeks at the end. Next week will be our last week in the book of Leviticus. Uh, so we're going to have to sprint to the end. We're going to have to have a, a, a great finishing kick, like a marathoner who, coming down that back stretch, run, runs that final mile, is his fastest mile of the whole 26. That's what we're going to have to do next week. Um, 
But this week, I want to look at these three chapters, which look at two main topics. One, one is, is the priests in chapters 21 and 22. And, and then, as we heard Steve lead us earlier in reading from chapter 23, the feasts. So we've got the priests and the feasts. Kind of works out nice as a nice little rhyming mnemonic device there. So, anyways, we look at chapter 21 and 22. We see a picture specifically about the feast and how how what is responsible or how they're responsible to have a, a level of piety, a level of holiness that is above and beyond that of, of the ordinary rank and file member of the people of God. Now, now we are all called to be holy, every one of us. That's not something that's just for a select group of people. We need to always remember that. Each and every one of us is called to holiness. We've seen it throughout the book of Leviticus where there's been call after call from the Lord to be holy, much as God is holy. But what we see here in chapters 21 and 22 is that the priests have an even higher level of holiness, uh, even higher standard that is expected of them. We see it in such things as the opening verses of chapter 24 where Moses speaks as to speak to the priests and say, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him because she's had no husband, for he may make her unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband amongst people. Anyway, it goes on to say, basically what's saying here is except for the closest of relatives, you can't touch a dead body. Remember that? I mean, you know, they, they didn't have, uh, you know, funeral homes that came and took away the bodies. <laughs> They didn't have somebody else who took care of all those types of things. That was something people did themselves. And they're living in very close proximity of that. And so what he says is, let's say you've got a cousin that's very near and dear to you that you want to be a part of the, the mourning process. He says, no, you're not a part of that mourning process. You are set apart to the Lord to have a, a higher level of holiness. You cannot become ceremonially unclean. Remember how we talked in past weeks about how they would, through touching a dead body becomes ceremonially unclean. He says, no, that, that's not allowed in these situations. And their mourning practices, the way they did mourn for those they could, they, they had to follow specific uh, rules. In verse 5, it says they shall make, not make bald patches on their head. I, I'm assuming that that means you, you, know, you can't intentionally do that. You know, I, otherwise, I'm, I'm kind of in trouble back here. Uh, many of us would be. Uh, say you can't do that intentionally. You can't uh, shave off the edges of their beards nor make any cuts on their body. The idea is these are mourning practices. Many of these were, were actually mourning practices among the pagan cultures in the area. And what it's saying is you, you can't have a part of any of these. You must be totally separated from that. You, you must be totally other, holy unto the Lord. And it goes in to talk about the different people that they're allowed to marry and and how there's a higher level of responsibility there as to who they can marry. It goes on and says ultimately in verse 7, for the priest is holy to his God. This is the reason that they have these higher standards because he's holy to God. He's set apart to God. God is to be his ultimate concern and he is 
there to do the work of God. And for the high priest, it's even, it's even a higher level of responsibility. It goes even beyond that. They're supposed to be so dedicated to the Lord that even the, the normal things that people would end up doing in their lives, they're not to be concerned with. They're not supposed to be doing these things. They're holy to God. It goes so far as even saying in the passage that, that, that a person who is a priest can, can have no blemish about them. It lists a number of different blemishes. You know, things like being blind or lame or, or having one limb longer than the other. Uh, you know, we, we don't think of this as being a big deal. And certainly these, these blemishes that it talks, I think there are 12 of them listed, they're not moral defects. We need to understand that. It's, God's not saying there is something morally wrong with you if you have these so you don't uh, meet the requirement to be a priest. What he's saying, though, is that there is something out of the ordinary there, something that, that is less than the ideal. It's a blemish. And so since the priest is to be exemplary in every way, he's supposed to be set apart for God, he's supposed to be uh, not just morally pure, but ceremonially pure, ritually pure. There can be none of these blemishes. And he's to not offer anything that has a blemish, likewise. And we, we've seen some of this already uh, in some of the things we've talked about with the sacrifices and how they have to be uh, pure, they have to be ritually clean, they can't offer just whatever they want. He says many of the same types of things with the sacrifices. They can't be uh, unpure. They can't have blemishes. Why do you think, why do you think God takes such care to make sure that the priests are set apart and that the sacrifices that they offer are, are so special? Well, it, it's, of course, because they have a special role to play. That's part of it. They have a special role. Uh, everybody has a special role. If, if by special role we mean a particular role, a, a unique role that guys give. But they have a special role in that, that they are to minister to the people of God on behalf of God. And they are supposed to work in the palace of the king essentially. So they can't come into the palace of the king in any kind of slipshod shape that they want. They have to take great care. You know, if you go to uh, Buckingham Palace in England, you know, the, the, you, you see all, all the people dressed up there in special finery. They, they present themselves in a certain way. They can't just, you know, the, the guards and the the different people working there, they can't just show up however they want. They have to have a certain appearance about them. And it was much the same with the priests. They could not in any way contaminate the palace of the king. Beyond this, it was a reminder of the, the great privilege that they had to serve in this capacity and the great responsibility that they bore in serving in this capacity and finally they were supposed to be a symbol of purity 
to the people of God. When people of God looked at them, they were to be reminded of the purity that God requires. And in being reminded of that purity, they are reminded of the purity that they need to have. Now, of course, we're talking about a lot of symbolic purity here, but it's supposed to refer to the moral purity that resides in them. And so it is even today with the church, where the leaders of the church should have such moral purity. They should have certain things. In, in, in just a couple of weeks, we will uh, elect elders for another year. Elders who will serve as the leaders of the church. And the Bible has much to say to us about the type of people who should serve in that office. In 1 Timothy 3, we see uh, these words. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Titus, likewise, we read a a similar list in Titus 1, verses 6 through 9. We see that, that there is a high level of purity that is expected of the leaders of God's people. And you should, when you cast your ballots in a couple of weeks you should expect that and you should you should demand that of your elders as they live out their lives in front of you it is a high calling a high responsibility and there is a high level of holiness required it's certainly true of your pastor and i'm the first to tell you that your pastor fails time and time again to exhibit the holiness that he should have. And yet, God is faithful and gracious. And together we strive toward that holiness. And I would say this, if I could ask for one prayer request, one thing that you could pray for me. People ask me that all the time. And, and if I could give you one answer, I think this is it. Pray for my personal holiness. I could say, pray that I'd be better at this or better at that. But I would say, pray for my personal holiness. Charles Spurgeon said this once about pastors. He said, true and genuine piety is necessary as the first indispensable requisite. Whatever call a man may pretend to have, if he has not been called to holiness, he certainly has not been called to the ministry. And Robert Murray McShane once and being asked of of what the greatest need was for a pastor to have. He said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. And so I ask you, I, I, I ask you, pray for your pastor. Pray that he would exhibit personal holiness. Not holiness that he drums up on his own, but holiness that comes from the holiness of Christ who dwells within him. That would be my prayer Pray for your own personal holiness as well. Pray that you would be following Christ in holiness. 
Pray that you would seek him and his ways. And especially if you are a leader, a leader in the church as an elder or, or even a leader as a, a teacher, uh, a, a, a deacon, a parent. If you are a leader in any way, pray for your own personal holiness that you might in leading display that holiness to others and that they might seek it as well. And so be an example to the ones who are following you and an example to the world that is watching for that is what our call is, remember. We are to be uh, uh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that the world around us might see the glory of God. So we have these reasons that, that the priests were called to a higher level of holiness, but ultimately I think the, the most important reason that they were called to that higher level of responsibility in holiness was because both the men who were the priests and the sacrifices which they offered ultimately point to Christ Jesus. And that's really what's at the core of all this. Jesus is both our high priest, we read in Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ is our high priest. He, he was God and he was man. Both come together and he was tempted in every way like us and yet without sin as our high priest. And at the same time, he is our atoning sacrifice. He is the spotless lamb of God. And for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a wonderful blessing it is to have Christ Jesus, our high priest, our atoning sacrifice. And we should remember his holiness. Leviticus 22 ends with God saying, So shall you keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name and that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. See, that, that was the key. These people of God were, were in a state where they had been brought out of Egypt. They had been delivered from slavery, from bondage. And God was now having made a covenant with them, showing them how to live in his land. And part of that covenant that he set up was the calendar. As Steve mentioned, this calendar that, that would follow. It was a calendar of feasts that would be celebrated time and time again. In chapter 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Interesting, he says... These are the feasts of the Lord, and they are my appointed feasts. What exactly does he mean by that? Well, I, I think what he means is, is, one, they're appointed by him. That's what this whole passage is about in chapter 23. It is his appointment of these feasts. Uh, but, but many of them were already being celebrated. It's not like they just came out of thin air. I think what he's saying even more is that they were appointed to be times of gathering for worship of him as the most high God, the Lord who had delivered them. They are his days where he is to be celebrated. He is to be remembered. He is to be honored. He is to be glorified. Much as we might say, you know, it is my birthday. That's the day where I 
I'm celebrated. It's my day. These are the Lord's days. And they all follow kind of this same pattern, a little bit of pattern that's said in verse 3 with the introduction here in this passage. He talks about the, the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath, of course, that he's calling people to. He says, six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. This, of course, goes back uh, to creation when God worked for six days and then on the seventh day he rested. That wasn't because God got tired. It was because he's setting a pattern. He's setting a pattern that is to be followed. And, and so he picks it up here. And, and the way this Sabbath pattern works, it's the idea of rest. It's to rest from working, to, to not continue striving, but rest. It's reiterated, of course, in the Ten Commandments. And, and Moses talks about it in Exodus 16 when, when he's talking to the people about collecting the manna in the wilderness. They, they collect on six days, but the, on the seventh day they're not supposed to collect. So on the sixth day they take twice as much. And we, of course, follow a pattern like this also, a weekly pattern, don't we? We're here on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. We gather here on the Lord's Day because this is the day on which Christ rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. And so the church has accepted this as the day that we celebrate week after week, after week after week. We celebrate Easter. We don't think of it that way often. We think of Easter as being this one day in the spring, but really that's what we do. Every Sunday we are celebrating Easter. We're celebrating the fact that Christ Jesus has died for our sins and risen from the grave, and that he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. And so we follow this pattern week after week, much as the people of God did, and we, like they did, pause from our work to gather together and to worship him. And this is what they did in all of these feasts. We see the, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread mentioned here. Uh, on the 14th day of the first month, which would be in our springtime, uh, they, they had the Passover. Now the Passover also went back to, to the time of Exodus, where you'll recall people were in bondage and, and God told them that, that the angel uh, would come and strike down the firstborn in every home unless there was the blood of the lamb on the doorpost over them. So, so in a very real sense, it was the blood of the lamb covering them that kept them from the judgment of God. And so it was that they were to celebrate this fact. They ended up receiving freedom from bondage through this act. And so they were to remember it year after year. And they had this Passover celebration followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the week following the Passover, days 15 to 21 of that first month. And there was a meal celebrated in conjunction with all of this to remember the Lord's faithfulness, much the same as we celebrate a meal on occasion to remember the Lord's faithfulness. Remember what the Lord said on that night when he was betrayed. He gave them bread, he gave them wine. And what does he said? This do in remembrance of me. As we turn to verses 9 through 14, we see the feast of the first fruits. We know that this was the day after the first Sabbath of the harvest. They would bring a sheaf of their first grain, which would be a barley. And, and in doing this and bringing the first 
fruits of the harvest, the first part, they're acknowledging that this all came from God, that it all belonged to the Lord, that they were bringing back a portion of what was already his. Again, we do the same thing with, with our offerings that we bring. This is what we're doing. We're, we're saying that this, this Lord I only have because it came from you. I only have this because it is yours. You have given it to me and I offer back to you these first fruits. Hopefully that's what we do. You know, sometimes I think uh, there's a temptation or a tendency among some to, to say, okay, I'm going to spend my money here, spend my money here, spend my money here. And if I have any left over at the end, I'm more than happily give it to the Lord. Well, I, that's not the pattern. It's a pattern of first fruits, giving to the Lord the first and the best, knowing that it was his already. And then we see following that, verses 15 to 22, this idea of the feast of weeks, literally the feast of sevens. And so there were seven weeks or seven sevens. You see why it's called the feast of weeks, the feast of sevens, because there were seven sevens, which is 49 days. And then the next day after that is the 50th day. And that's the day that they would celebrate what we call Pentecost, which comes from the Greek word Pentecostos, meaning uh, the 50th. Well, they would have this celebration then that was a celebration of, of the gathering in of the harvest. You know, we think of Pentecost in terms of, of the New Testament. We think of the Holy Spirit coming. But Pentecost existed long before that, and it was a celebration of the, of the ingathering of the harvest. And so it was that in verse 22 we read, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor, the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So, so he says we have this celebration with this harvest. But he says, but when you do gather in the harvest, don't gather in everything. Leave some for those less fortunate than you. Leave some. Remember when we studied Ruth last year? Remember what she was doing when, when she was first noticed by Boaz? She was gleaning around the outside of, the, of his field. It's because Boaz... Listen to what God had said in Leviticus 23, 22. He did what he had commanded and he left some around the outside edges for others to come glean. It's interesting. God doesn't say, leave some there and, and then when people come to get it, make sure that they really deserve it. Make sure that they're really good people. Make sure that they uh, are willing to work really hard. Make sure that they've you know, done all the things that they're supposed to do. To... No, he doesn't say any of this. He just says, leave it. Leave it for others and let them take of it and leave the results to God I think we could be instructed by that we see uh, you know there, there's different opportunities we have to give uh, you know we've got giving that we can do for the holiday baskets being put together by Martha and Mary the table out front there's uh, for the women's uh, Christmas lunch coming up I saw today they've got a box out there to receive gifts for children in conjunction with that these are great opportunities for us to give, to, to, to give, to leave the edges of our field, as it were, for someone else. We can follow this pattern as well. Moving more quickly, uh, the Feast of Trumpets was just very briefly described. All I'm going to say about that is that trumpets were blown to herald the coming of a king. And so it was there. The Day of Atonement 
is mentioned. We've already spent a whole sermon on the Day of Atonement two weeks ago. I won't speak about that any more than to say, remember that that is the day on which uh, sin was removed. As far as east is from the west, through a scapegoat, and atonement was made through a sacrifice as well for the people of God. And then ultimately the, day, the Feast of Booths uh, we read about here, which was a memorial of that time in, in Exodus when they were wandering in the wilderness in, in tents and they were to keep this as a, a mem- remembrance of this time that they spent living in tents, tabernacling in the wilderness, as it were. Well, why did God set up this calendar? Well, he, he, he provided a rhythm for them in life, a rhythm that we need as well. Uh, that idea of work and rest, work and rest, fast and feast, fast and feast. We need to follow that. It's also a reminder for them of what God had done, of his faithfulness to them. You know, he, he reminds them about this deliverance from Egypt. Their history and ours alike would show that we need reminders. They forgot They grumbled in Exodus 15, Exodus 16, Exodus 17. We see them time and time again grumbling after God had just delivered them from slavery. They say, oh, we were better back there. You should have just left us back there, Moses. Why did you bring us out here to the wilderness to die? God had delivered them. They forget so quickly, and so do we. We need to be reminded, and so it's good to have a calendar, a pattern that reminds us Most importantly, though, perhaps, much the same as we've seen earlier in Leviticus with the priests and the sacrifices and the temple, the schedule points us to Christ. It points us to Christ. You see, all these things are, are, are but shadows. The substance is found in Christ. Christ is, for instance, our Sabbath rest. You know, Sabbath, you cease to work. Well, what does Hebrews tell us? Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. We can find our Sabbath rest in him, our eternal rest in him, no longer striving, trying to earn our righteousness, but rather receiving his payment for us. And resting in him, knowing that we can never work hard enough to gain redemption. But Christ has gained it for us, for he is also our Passover lamb. He has paid the penalty for our sin. His blood has been spread over us so that the judgment of God might pass over. That we need not be struck dead in judgment, but rather might have forgiveness Redemption, deliverance from his hand. We look at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We see the idea that they had to leave quickly in the Exodus. They didn't have time for the bread to be leavened. And so, so they were to remember that through this feast. But, but the leaven was, was reckoned to be a sign of sin. And so it is that we read in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, 
the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, you already are holy in Christ. You are holy in Christ today, right now. No matter what sin you have in your life, you are holy in Christ if you have trusted in him. So be what you already are. For Christ was the first fruits pointing to a great harvest, was he not? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And what happened, what happened after his resurrection, which not coincidentally took place on that, that first Sunday, that first day after the Sabbath, which would have been the first Sabbath of the harvest, when Christ, the first fruits, on that first day of first fruits came forward. Well, 50 days later on Pentecost, there was a great harvest. A great harvest and people were harvested, were brought into the church. And so we see that this pointed to that great harvest and the trumpets, the feast of trumpets ought to remind us of the trumpet blow of, of the archangel that we will hear on the last day when Christ Jesus returns to consummate his kingdom. As we've said already, in the Day of Atonement, we should see how Christ is both our scapegoat, having taken our sin far from us, but also our atoning sacrifice, absorbing the wrath of God. Let us always remember when we think of the festival of tabernacles, the festival of booths, that God, in the person of Christ Jesus, the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. You see Jesus is our all in all. And every one of these festivals points to him. And every festival that we have in the church ought to point to him. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Because every Sunday is Christ. Amen. Our Lord please, please, please help us to more clearly see you in all things at all times. Help us to remember your great grace. Help us to remember your goodness to us. Help us never to forget these things. As we celebrate different holidays, especially in this holiday season that is coming, help us to remember you and all you have done For holidays and festivals are but a shadow. The substance is in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.